Hello, all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. I hope this last podcast of the year finds you resting and remembering the hope you have in Jesus, especially during a crazy busy season of the school semester ending with celebrations at every turn and, of course, the tail end of all the last-minute everything for Christmas. If this doesn't find you remembering and resting, my prayer is always that this will be that time for you. My family and I have just wrapped up our very first Christmas tour called A Night of Hope, and it was just that for us every night. A moment to gather and remember what's truly important and who is at the helm and who we can rest in in this season, Jesus. It was such a sweet time of worship each night. We're already looking forward to the next year, and we hope that we can come to a city near you if you missed it this year. It was especially amazing having our kids be involved. It was the first time they've gotten to be a part of one of our concerts, really, in like an actual way. Noah got to play the guitar, and the girls sang with us. It was truly so special. I told the people each night that this is how I learned, and it was that my parents involved me in church, and it was this great training ground for me. I've shared before that my dad was a pastor my whole life, and I started singing in church probably at the age of seven or eight years old. I wasn't a spectacular singer as a child, I'll admit, but I'm grateful that my parents saw something in me and just gave me an opportunity to use my gifts and just grow in front of people. That's a huge part of it. But times have changed in many ways, and I know this sounds really old-fashioned to me, but now that most church scenarios are just kind of like mega-churched with polished worship sets and fog machines, which I understand that. It takes all kinds. But it makes me realize how special it was to be raised in a small country church where I could work out my gifting in front of people who knew me and loved me and cared about me. All that to say, I felt like we were able to kind of give that to our kids this tour, a safe place for them to learn and grow in front of people who cared about them and enjoyed it all at the same time. They didn't have to perform perfectly, but just feel a part of it. And that was really special for us, for a family, like in a really powerful way. I got to meet many fans of the music and the podcast this month, and that was truly a joy. I teared up several times as I got to hear personal stories from people about how the Christmas album, The Thrill of Hope, or how Be Held, Lullabies for the Beloved have truly touched people in such incredibly personal ways, ways that only the Spirit of God could think of. They're so creative and special. So it was really sweet. I found myself in little scenarios like my runner who was taking me to Hobby Lobby in Minnesota the other day. She very humbly said after a while in the car, "Um, I just wanted you to know that I'm Nikki and you answered my question on the podcast the other day about songwriting. And I was like, oh my gosh. Nikki is a patron of the podcast through Patreon, someone who helps this podcast keep going. And there, I got to sit in her minivan as she carted me around so I could get some last-minute shopping done. So thank you, Nikki. Thank you and your friends, Kristen and Sarah and Alexi and the wonderful people at Hillside Church there in Bloomington. We did get that special basket of goodies in the green room, by the way. 
especially those really soft leggings. So thank you for that. And thank you to all the other promoters and churches and, of course, Compassion International that made our Christmas tour the Night of Hope possible. We are just forever grateful. And again, just so looking forward to hopefully getting to do that again next year. Well, today is part two of the conversations episode, which is just a really fancy word for Q&A. We had fun with this last month, and we have some really great questions today, so I'm just going to jump in. This first one is a fun one. Jocelyn says, Many years ago at a concert in Houston, I heard you and Nathan talking about something that was so funny to me. Here's what's ridiculous. At 44 years old, my brain seems to be failing me. I can never quite remember what it was. I want to say that it was your answering machine message or a commercial. I don't know. I just remember you singing it. But I'm so hoping that you can remind me because it was awesome just to see and hear about the fun of the two of you. So Jocelyn, actually you have a really good memory because it was actually both of those things. We did sing you both our answering machine song when we first got married and a commercial jingle that we had made. During our watermark years, we had a little segment of our concerts that we talked about us growing as songwriters and how some of our first songwriter moments were not our finest. <laughs> we laugh thinking back on our first apartment together all those years ago. I think it was like 750 square feet. I don't know. But it was all full of hand-me-down furniture. And front and center was this little electric piano that Nathan's grandmother had given us. And it was there that we'd spend most nights in that little living room, just working out our gifting. We were so excited to have those 800 square feet or so together. It was more than we could have asked for, honestly. I remember how fun it was to have our own phone number and our own answering machine, of course. This was back when you actually went and bought an answering machine that you could like rewind and fast forward and record your own greeting. So naturally, we wrote a song for it because why not? And Nathan's actually sitting right here. So we're just going to give you a little bit of that right about now. (laughs) And I'm really sorry in advance. Leave your name and number And we'll get right back to you Yeah Leave your name and number And we'll call you back real soon Yeah (laughs) My mom would call and leave a message and I'm sure that Everyone who called us at that season of our lives were just like, yeah, we've heard you sing your whole life. Just want to leave a message. And now for that jingle. Again, this was literally our first year of marriage, and a friend of ours worked for an ad agency, and they needed a jingle. So we were told that they would give us $100 if we could write a jingle for a place called Alpha Plasma Center. We were elated actually for real, because we were like, we're going to get a hundred bucks. They gave us very specific criteria. This needed to be about the convenient exchange of helping others by giving your plasma, of course, but how you were also helping yourself because, hey, you were going to get quick cash on the spot. So this is what we came up with. Truly riveting. You can make a difference in just a little time. Quick cash is your advantage for giving others life. If you're looking for a way to help someone who's in need, 
Well, Alpha Plasma Center is the place you want to be. It pays to help another, so come and help yourself to an easy way to make quick money and help someone else redundant. You can make a difference in just a little time. Quick cash is your advantage for giving others life. Here it goes. Alpha Plasma Center, helping others while you help yourself. <laughs> That's the worst premise of any song ever. Oh, my word. Thankfully, we kept growing as songwriters, and we did not make a living as jingle writers, which I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm okay with that. Not that we could have made it anyway, but in that little watermark segment, Jocelyn, we would have gone on to tell you that we did keep writing, and we'd sing the song called Everything that was on our first watermark record in that little segment, which was a song we wrote in a little laundromat of our apartment complex. We would wait until we literally had no clean clothes left, and we were absolutely desperate to go do laundry. We'd have to drive all of our laundry there at that point to the little facility because there was so much at that point. And on those nights, we'd just get like Chinese takeout because I wasn't about to leave our laundry sitting there, which was pretty much everything I owned besides our furniture. And we'd bring the guitar, and we'd sit on top of the washer and dryer and write songs. $75 and quarters later, we'd come out with clean clothes. And I will admit to you that still to this day, I've never figured out a rhythm with laundry. Maybe it's because of our schedule. I don't know. But I don't have a laundry day. I don't do laundry each day like I should. And I will tell you this, that all three of my children actually know how to do their own laundry. <laughs> In fact, my older two have become very particular about their laundry, and they prefer to do it on their own. They like certain things hung out to dry and certain things dried in the dryer. But part of that is because they learned that mom does not have a rhythm with this thing, and it is one of the ways that they can help out by doing their own laundry plus the only way sometimes that they have clean clothes. We do have a few friends who stay with our kids, some of our nannies that bless me every once in a while when I come home and they've done all of Annie Rose's laundry and all of my laundry for me. And I come home and I see clean towels folded in our bathroom cabinet and it literally brings tears to my eyes. All you moms who have teenage girls who babysit, this is something that you can instill in them right now. If they want to be the babysitter that gets called back, tell them to fold towels and do the dishes, and they'll always get called back. Next question, Jamie asked, of all the venues in which you have led worship, which is your favorite? I know this kind of sounds like a cop-out, but it's a really hard thing to answer this question because we do so many different kinds of things and have for the last 20 years. We've led for conferences that are just women, and we've led for passion conferences, which is just college students for many, many years. We do concert nights like our Christmas tour that we just finished that are more of like a singer-songwriter kind of night mixed with worship. And I've gone on bigger tours as a guest artist, like with my friend Chris Tomlin for many years, where we led worship in arenas. Also, I associate venues more with people than I do with actual buildings. I'll tell you about just some of my favorite nights that I've gotten to be a part of. One that stands out in my memory and always will was a muddy field in Uganda as we stood before about 25 to 30,000 Ugandan college students one night. This was with the Passion Band several years ago, and I'll never forget how it rained that day, and we were worried that the sound might not even come on, as we also worried if anyone would even show up. There were no fancy lights to light up the field, so we couldn't really even see the crowd very well at first, but I remember 
being so moved by how they started singing that night and how they knew so many of the worship songs in English, actually. And they began to call out songs that they wanted us to sing in English. And I'll never forget them yelling out the song, white flag, white flag. So Chris Tomlin, he began to lead it, and we all began to sing this beautiful song. And it was as if they had all sent each other a memo. Suddenly, in that muddy field, thousands and thousands of little white flags begin to wave as those Ugandan students begin to raise their voices and their hearts to sing, we raise our white flag, we surrender all to you. We raise our white flag, the war is over, love has come, your love has won. I'm telling you that each of them had a small white like handkerchief type thing in their hand. So literally as they're singing that, Thousands and thousands of these flags were waving in the dark in an area of the world that has been so oppressed by war over the years. And even at that time, had been very recently oppressed by Coney. Here were these students proclaiming surrender, the ultimate fight back when the enemy is pressing in. Surrender to Jesus and let him fight for you. It still brings tears to my eyes, and I'll never forget it. I remember Chris and I in the band fighting back tears as we just stood there in awe of what the Holy Spirit does through music. It's just jaw-dropping and unforgettable. I also love getting to lead women in particular in worship. There's just something so incredibly special about when women gather and we lift our voices together. I think because of all that we carry, the different hats and roles that we wear and live out each day, the multitasking, the nurturing part of God's heart that's in us, the facilitating that we do, the welcoming that we do, it's just really powerful to come together and worship and surrender all of that and admit that He is the one that's holding it all together, and we really aren't. He's holding us together. Nathan would also tell you that there is another level of transparency and freedom that comes over me when I get to lead just women. I think because I can identify fully where women are, and I can imagine what they need as we gather and worship, and it's really actually freeing for me as I feel like I can be authentic with where I'm at as we journey together in worship, because worship is very much a journey. So it's just beautiful getting to lead women. There is something so powerful, even about the tone of our voices together. It's just gorgeous. I would say this, if I had to pick one actual venue that I absolutely loved getting to sing in, it would be when Nathan and I got to lead at Royal Albert Hall in London, England a few years ago. We were guests along with Matt Redman, and I got to lead a few songs on my own right in the middle of a four or 500 voice choir, and then on top of that, a full symphony. This was such a special night that they have once a year called Prom Praise. And I was very taken back by how the front rows were actually packed with young people. Because get this, this night is actually about their nation's hymns and sacred songs. Many of the hymns I actually didn't know because they were hymns that are popular in England that are not necessarily popular hymns in the American church. But I got to see these college kids, some of them high school kids, singing hymns to the top of their lungs. The history of the church there, right there, still ringing out in these young believers. It was really beautiful. I have to admit, I felt like Cinderella that night. I've been asked the question recently, which Disney princess do you identify with the most? 
and I always say Cinderella. This isn't a poor me statement. (laughs) I just identify with mostly living in moments that are pretty mundane. My thoughts are mostly filled with what needs to be done. I don't have a personal assistant. We don't have a full-time nanny. We have a person who does clean twice a month, but as you know, that feels like twice a year most of the time. I mean, I am grateful for the twice a month, but I got to fill in a lot there. And there's no house manager. There's no chef. Side note, another question I was posed on the bus the other day just on this tour was, if you could afford one luxury every day, what would it be? And I definitely said a chef. Can you imagine three meals a day of fresh, healthy food for your family just waiting for you? And then you can just like enjoy what dinner time really can be. Oh, it would just be heaven for me. Anyway, most of my life, is really just plain and ordinary and behind-the-scenes moments that really kind of revolve around my kids, their schooling, their teeth, their braces, their friends, their needs. And then, because I am an independent recording artist, I don't have a label anymore. I don't have a marketing department. It's me, Nathan, and my manager, Matt. So our little team has worked harder than ever these past few years just to steward well what we feel like God has given us to steward. So the going to the ball moments are very few and far between. But that night at Royal Albert Hall, I felt like Cinderella getting to go to the ball. Part of that reason was that there was a dress code. Had there not been, y'all, let's face it, you know I would have shown up in black pants and a cozy sweater and boots. I did wear an old gown that I had already had from like Devil Words past, but it did feel special to dress up and just bring my best and be in that gorgeous venue in a long gown. This venue was dedicated in 1871 by Queen Victoria, named after her husband, Prince Albert. P.S. They are one of my favorite love stories of all time. But the current queen still has her very own box there, of course, and anyone who is anyone has played in that very venue. So this simple girl from Oklahoma felt a little bit out of her element that night, but it was quite magical, I must admit, and I will never forget it. Moving on, Sarah asks, what is one way you maintain sanity as an introvert while on the road? I think one thing that has freed me up through the years is that I have had to let the people know around me that I'm introverted. And then it frees me up to have these moments where I can sneak away and they don't have to question if there's something wrong with me or if it's something they did. I remember sitting our manager down who used to strictly just be our road manager, but now he's stepped into more of an overall management role. But we did tell him up front, here's who we are. Here's our tendencies, because both Nathan and I are introverted. Here's how we could be read wrong. Here's our weak spots that we know about. Here's our strengths that we know about. And it helps so much just knowing that. I think about ourselves to be aware of, of what it's like to be on the other side of us. It's one of the best things that we've ever done for ourselves is just kind of know that and be aware of it. It's also very freeing. It nips a lot of assumptions, and it helped Matt to know that it wasn't him. It was just us being us. So communication with your team or your family in this way is a really big thing. 
first of all. We do always have a room that is set aside for just me and Nathan. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, just quiet. And we do love lamps. And lately, even on the Christmas tour, we've had some people like pick up on that. So thank you for all you people who did our green rooms, who put Christmas trees and lamps in there. We do appreciate those special touches. We do often just end up inviting our band to just kind of be in that space because they're actually all kind of quiet people. And we kind of just like to get in a little groove and be in our little quiet space. And it just works. I usually have plenty to do. So that's never an issue. So there's always something that I can go busy myself with. But beyond that, I also try to also bring something with me that isn't work so that I can just have some moments of just getting away and being quiet and creative. Often on the road, I just kind of crave like creativity or something that I can sort of go look at or maybe just go to a little shop. Sometimes it's a trip to a local coffee shop. It just helps. It's something just making a cup of tea sometimes on the bus and just looking at Pinterest. That helps me sort of just kind of have that refueling time of my creativity. Several years ago, our band guys cracked up at me because I took on a project around Christmas time of making Annie Rose some little felt mice for Christmas. She had seen something in a movie, these little fabric mice that lived in this tiny little set of dresser drawers. So I took upon this craft of learning how to felt. I had no idea There was such a thing, if I'm being honest. Essentially, you just learn that you need wool, that you can go buy it like a craft store. Um, You can buy it in an array of colors. It comes just this little package of just fluffy wool, and you need this felting needle and this little rubber stopper thing that kind of helps stop the felt needle, which you will really need, or you will stab your knee or your palm. But this little needle has tiny little barbs at the bottom of it, and these little barbs, essentially, as you put the needle in and out, they tease the wool. And as the wool begins to tease, it begins to harden. And you can really make it into any shape that you want. You can make jewelry or you can make little animals. In my case, it was mice. But I made a whole like little nativity scene one year. It's actually quite fascinating. It's a painful craft. I'm not going to (laughs) lie that it's not hard to stab yourself like a lot with these tiny little needles, but it's actually kind of worth it because creating something so lifelike with the wool was enough to keep me pressing onward. If you go look on Etsy, you will find vendors who sell these little felt animals for literally hundreds of dollars. Not that I will ever be doing that, but it's a fun little thing that I've brought on the road with me many times to sort of just clear my mind. And I know that was the farthest thing in the world from what you thought I was going to (laughs) say. Hopefully you're entertained all in all. It's just getting that time, I think, alone to quiet myself and do something with my hands helps me practice being present, just being where my feet are. It helps me trust God with things I can't control and with things that I sometimes feel like I don't have the capacity for. But it helps me kind of rise to the occasion, and it's important to get that time alone to recharge so that I can engage with people. Along those same lines, Patty said, I would love to hear your thoughts on how you have walked through leading with humility. What has it been like in your life to have Jesus' call and voice greater than the chatter around you? 
Walking out the call to serve and love others can often be met with criticism, feedback, and disagreement. How have you found the balance to listen with a humble heart, but ultimately moving ahead in certainty where God is leading you? One aspect of your leading that I admire is your transparency, down-to-earth connection with people, and walking by the Spirit. I would love for you to talk through that balance and the rhythms that have grounded you in Him alone. Well, first of all, I'm so very grateful to have been raised inside of authentic ministry through the years and that our start was not just in the record-making business, but was truly born out of a desire and a longing to know Jesus and to lead people to know Him more. And I credit that to my parents and the leaders that they put around me. And I think the same for Nathan. He was just around some really great leaders kind of right around the time that we met that helped sort of just raise us up. And starting out that way, it's just helped me view making records more as actually creating resources and to look at what we do from a kingdom perspective. More than ever recently, I have seen firsthand of what it's like to really partner with the Holy Spirit to turn over what we create to Him fully and watch Him literally use it in a myriad of ways that I will possibly never even know about. I think humility grows in us when we grow in our understanding of who God is and how big He is and how amazing it is that He invites us into His work with Him. There's always an overarching, bigger story. And when I get to lead people or sing over them, I consider it a huge privilege to step into what God is already doing in their lives. He's the one who made them. He's working in their lives. He's orchestrated every moment in their lives up until that moment that I get to step in front of them and lead. And I guess I just try to make sure that I am fully aware of that and that I'm remembering that He's invited me into that moment. And ultimately, it's His work that I'm partnering in and not my own. Transparency is such a big part of learning how to lead people. It's not this like air your dirty laundry type thing. It's more just helping people know that you understand where they're coming from and that you struggle too. Pretense is pretending you don't struggle, basically. And to me, there's nothing helpful that comes from living that way or trying to appear that way as a leader to others. It's basically the same thing as lying. You don't have to share every gory detail of your struggle for people to learn and be encouraged by, but you can just openly identify with people in their struggle and in their need for Jesus. There's much we can learn by each other's stories, and by each other's struggles. I always say that our own refinement, meaning how we are personally going through the fire, is our language for discipleship. In other words, and I've said it before, God is going to bring people into the general vicinity of you who need to learn from you from what He's bringing you through right now. You being appropriately open with what He's carrying you through could literally change someone's life. I want to be a leader who is honest about where I'm at and even how I might be struggling. This also gives birth to more humility because it keeps me constantly aware of my utter dependence upon Jesus and my need for Him every day. Now, as far as His voice above anyone else's, 
I will be honest and say that it has taken me many years to learn how to listen to Jesus's voice above the noise. I'm not going to say that we ever arrived to a place this side of heaven where we're just 100% of the time keeping his voice elevated over the other voices, but I do believe that it can become a rhythm in our lives. And for the most part, you can really start to live in freedom from the chatter and the noise. It takes breaking free of it. And I had to have that moment in my life. It was a pruning that was painful, but it was worth every cut and it was fruitful. Part of it was having to be okay with being misunderstood and just choosing his voice, even if it meant the lonely choice, the way less popular path. Ultimately, hearing his voice above the others and the noise means one thing. It means freedom. But freedom is never free, is it? It comes at a cost. And I've just come to realize that the cost, though it's painful and really super mysterious sometimes, it is better than the alternative, which is being in bondage to something that I wasn't made to be in bondage to. The harsh spiritual truth is that I realized, at least just for me, that elevating anyone else's voice over the voice of God in my life was actually idolatry. You can look all through the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17 comes to mind, that we can get a feel there how serious God takes idolatry. Here's the thing. I can say this because I've lived it. God can still use you, even with a big old ugly idol sitting right on your front porch. But if you really want to follow Him in humility and trust Him with your life and uproot the idol, do that heart work. It's not an easy work, but it's so worth it. So I think those things have just kept me humble as I've kind of just journeyed with God through the years as a leader, just constantly remembering my own need for Him. And yes, sometimes we do have to deal with um, maybe constructive criticism, sometimes even painful criticism. And we have to take those things to God. I think I talked about that the first season of just learning how to take those things into the secret place and kind of open your hand in front of God and say, okay, here's the things that I've been told today, or here was some constructive criticism, or here was some frustration that someone had with me today. And show me what I can learn from this. Help me pick apart what is actually you and what's flesh. And what is of you, I receive that. I receive that correction. I receive that discipline. And what's not of you, God, help me to just learn where to put that. I'm going to leave it right here in the secret place with you for you to deal with because you said I could cast all of my cares upon you. Jamie, you ask, um, what are the practices for getting quiet when you sense stirrings for a new project? Or perhaps better stated, what areas of your daily life have you found success in being able to be still and quiet and wait before the Lord? You know, I've spent a lot of years beating myself up over not having a quiet time when I should or the length of time that I think I should. I spent many years thinking that God was mad at me because I didn't get up at 5 a.m. before my little ones and have an hour with Him before they got up. I told you before how I started meeting with my brother Eric back in around like 2011 over the phone. And this was right when the Lord had gotten a hold of Eric's heart around this truth of being God's beloved and how it had changed his life. And I could truly see that Eric was living different he was talking differently. He was resting differently. And I'll never forget when he shared how the Lord had shifted his mindset from having a quiet time to living a life 
of remembrance. And this was a big one for me. I was raised in church, and this was hammered into my head from the time I was very little that I needed to have a quiet time every day. So there was always what felt like this chore ahead of me. And the worst part was that I was missing the entire point all at the same time. When I too started to understand my belovedness that I talk about all the time, I began to understand this concept of remembrance that Eric and Kristen have really just built their whole entire ministry around, helping people learn how to live in that remembrance and rest. And I started to understand how it was a mindset. It was a heart posture all throughout my day from the time I woke up in the morning until I closed my eyes at night. And when you start to live like that, your entire day is subject to stillness and quiet and rest and waiting before the Lord. So I could be vacuuming or driving or jogging, which it's never jogging. I'll go ahead and admit that. But all that time is up for grabs for God to speak, for Him to help me remember, for me to rest in Him. This is the glorious and the mundane. So what my day ends up looking like in terms of getting still is that I have pockets all throughout my day that I get still My girls start school at 9 a.m. at home on a regular day, which is in and of itself just completely glorious for us. So as you can imagine, there's some margin there for me in the morning because they're older now. If you have little ones, I promise you, it gets easier. It's coming. This is a season. And enjoy them because it's going to be gone quicker than you can possibly imagine. I know right now you feel like you're in quicksand, but I promise you, You're going to blink, and it's going to be five years from now. The days are long, but the years are short. So if you have littles and you have five minutes, take that five minutes. The whole point is the posture of your heart. I've got some episodes coming soon on postures of the heart, by the way. But you can just take what you can throughout the day to remember. Honestly, even if it's just during your bathroom breaks. I remember this. I'm not even kidding. Keep remembering all throughout the day. Take one verse, maybe, in the morning and think on it all day long. I've said it before that this is sort of that concept of praying without ceasing. It's remembering He's with you all throughout the day. And the conversation that you might be able to start in the morning can just actually keep going throughout the day. Just practice talking to Him out loud. I do this in front of my kids, and I sometimes will just respond out loud with prayer, and my kids have just learned to just go with it. If there are stirrings, like I shared about with you know creating the Lullaby album, I'll sometimes buy a new journal, nothing too fancy or sacred looking, just sometimes just a white notebook. I just start filling it up during those moments that I do get to sit still so I can look back on all those little conversations throughout the week and I can begin to pull out the themes. If I hear one phrase, like for instance, I was telling you I heard the phrase wrap this one up, which ended up being a song, song title. I wrote that down and I began to journal all around it and I expounded on that idea. And I also remember to start just praying around that idea. So the journal helps me remember and continue the conversation. So yes, I usually get some time to be still in the morning. I love praying the daily prayer from the Ransomed Heart app that I've told you about before. Then the point is just to kind of continue with whatever thoughts and ideas the Lord's began in me that morning and just sort of start threading it throughout my day all day. So my bathtub moments are, like I've said, moments where creative ideas come, the kitchen sink, 
the conversations continued. The point is, is that your spiritual world is just as real as your physical world. And you begin to sort of start being a quiet time instead of trying to have one. I'll never forget asking my brother one year around this time of year, I was saying, so do you think you're going to have any New Year's resolutions? And in so many words, he told me, how since he had really been understanding how to live from being God's beloved, that he was noticing how less and less he was devoted to methods or managing things and making big life changes. It was so much more about learning to just be. And it made me think, that's so true. When you start understanding how much you are loved and seen and known and understood by God, even in your most quiet moments, even in the unseen times, you begin to live from a place of being resolved. Not that we don't need to change and grow and break habits, but that becomes actually a daily thing and not a yearly thing as we learn to submit and trust every single day to God, trust our heart in every single way as God's beloved. It becomes this almost hourly thing your daily result. And as you begin to live like this, when you start in the morning, even if it's just five minutes, it will make it easier as you practice this to just sit down a few more times during the day. And you just go there in your heart because you've been there all morning. And a soul rest becomes your go-to as you get in this rhythm and it becomes easier and easier for the glorious to break through your mundane. And soon it becomes one and the same, if that makes sense. I know that sounds a little bit fluid, but that's kind of how it is. There's not like a, a method to it. It's more just this mindset. It's like renewing of your mind every morning, and you kind of start out your day that way, and then the little bits that you do get, you just continue the conversation all day long. And it's okay if it's out loud. Just teach your kids. It's okay if mama just needs to pray out loud. <laughs> So the next question is from Njoli. I think I'm saying that right. And I might be putting it together. If I'm wrong on this, just forgive me. But I'm wondering if you are the sweet lady who drove from Colorado to Houston to see our show with your little girl. If it's not you, no worries. But I think it was you guys. You brought me such sweet little gifts. So thank you if that is you. I think I'm putting it together that it's the same name, and I hope I'm saying it right. But your question was great. You were saying, I was wondering if you could share your methods for extracting a closely held secret incident like your recent moment with Annie Rose when you helped her recover her bounce. My daughter daughter's five, and she's introverted like her mama, and when something happens to upset her, she shuts down for processing. This is such a great question, and she's referring to um, the story of how the song River of Grace was written. Annie Rose, our youngest, is our bounciest child, and she is such a delight. But one day I had noticed that she had just lost her bounce and her little sparkle, and she was withdrawn. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit let me see it so that I could come around it. I've learned it's best to just kind of hit these things head on and invite the Lord in it to help you determine what's going on and just kind of bring Him in with you. I admit that I do have a tendency to panic and overreact, which I think probably a lot of mamas do. But one thing I've learned is that I will sort of begin to project onto my kids what I know of this world, which is a lot more than they know of this world. And sometimes I can sort of make it more serious than it actually is. I will many times through fear kind of project something way worse than what Annie Rose or any of our kids 
might actually be going through. And through worry and through not trusting the Lord, I will begin to see the situation as like super bleak and even helpless sometimes. It's sort of this mentality that I'm like suddenly alone in parenting and suddenly the enemy is going to win this battle. This is where it's been important for me to bring someone else into the picture with me as I'm trusting God. For me, that's Nathan, my husband. God has gifted Nathan with a personality that's for the most part just even keel. And he's able to think through a situation. He's an investigator of life. So often he's able to help me think through behaviors. And honestly, he helps me by remembering things from his own childhood and telling me about that moment to help kind of shed light on maybe what might be going on with our kids, with their behavior, or how they're reacting to something. If you're a single parent, maybe call grandma or a trusted friend or a relative to help you pray and think through it. We were with some friends the other night, and they were asking us how Annie Rose was doing since her episode a few months ago where we had to call an ambulance because she got very sick and she passed out. They were sharing some of their own emergency moments as parents, and they commented how one parent will usually react one way and the other completely the opposite. Typically, I'm, like I said, the one who's literally freaking out, running around, not thinking straight, and Nathan is so calm, like scary calm sometimes. But our friends remind us that it takes both of those reactions, actually. And that was a really cool thing to think about. But you actually kind of need one parent who is like, okay, this is not okay. This is an emergency, and there needs to be a sense of emergency and urgency to the situation, like we need to call 911 right now. And the other parent needs to be calm and steady and thinking it through slowly and talking it through and keeping the child chilled out. But that made me feel a lot better. And that's been the same when our kids have dealt with emotional things that they carry, things that they feel deeply or maybe even feel shame about. And the key word here is shame. Uh, We can never underestimate the hold that shame can have on even really young kids. This is a work of the enemy who hates them. So if you can't get your kids to talk to you, start chipping away at the shame. Remember that your kids are not what you're chipping away at. It's the enemy of their little soul that you need to fight. And think about the armor of God. What's the part of the armor that's both offense and defense? It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. And if you can't get them to talk, start letting the Word of God do the talking. Write scriptures. Put them all around their room. Color a picture together that's maybe about a scripture. Talk about the Bible verse together. Maybe Romans 10, 9 through 11. It's a good one. It says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. You could talk about what shame is. Shame is what the devil uses to make us feel bad, like something's wrong with us. God convicts us of sin, yes, and he's faithful and just to forgive, but God is not there to make us feel like something's wrong with us. The devil is the one who makes us believe that because we sinned or because we were sinned against, something is now wrong with us. It's so important to help kids have freedom to confess sin, and once they do, for them to feel your embrace right then and there. 
so that ultimately they will know the embrace of their Heavenly Father. This is really hard as a parent. And I say this with fear and trembling because I am still raising kids and I have to have total dependence on Jesus so that I cannot freak out when my kids confess things to me, but really trust Jesus with their hearts. He is who we are delivering our kids to. We're not sending our kids out into the world. We're constantly in the process of getting them to get under full dependence of God, and we're delivering them to Him day by day to God so that when they leave our house, they're fully His and fully dependent on Him. It's so hard to pry our fingers off of their hearts and their lives, and one of the hardest things ever. But confession is the key to freedom in our lives. And if we help our kids do that, confess things to God, sin and even sin that's been done to them that wasn't their fault, we're giving them keys to freedom. We have dealt with our kids seeing something on the internet and have to had to deal with the sadness of their innocence being taken away from them. It's been important during those conversations to diffuse and crush shame immediately for them to know that confession is the key and that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive them and that they are in right standing with Jesus because they believed on Him in their hearts and they've confessed with their mouth that He's Lord. We've used the analogy to keep the light on in their hearts. I've told you this before, and even that song, Keep the Light On from the Lullaby Record, is sort of from this. But turning the light on in our heart causes everything to come into view. So we purposefully flip that light on and willingly let Jesus see what's in it. He already knows what's in it, and we always tell that to the kids. He already knows what's there anyway, but getting them and getting ourselves, for that matter, to say what David said in Psalm 38, 9, all my longings lie open before you. Here's everything in my heart. Confession does take time, and it doesn't need to be this big, heavy thing, but getting them to say it out loud with their mouths is the goal, but that just takes time. And I will say something about them turning seven or even seven or eight or nine. It just helps a lot. You could work towards that goal if they're younger than that. And by by words, it can be so simple. It can really be about their heart and you can keep referring to their heart through it all. And you can even say things like, do you want to tell Jesus about it? And often they will say yes. They really do want to. Sometimes we just have to help them with what to say, but keeping the focus on their desire to want to tell Jesus. And the words can just be really simple. If they are young, again, just try coloring or reading a book together, something that just breaks their heart from that locked up place. And it takes time sometimes, and pushing the issue sometimes can elevate them. It can elevate our distress as well. And like I said, just projecting onto them something that simply isn't happening or isn't true. And that's also the enemy's scheme of getting us to believe that God doesn't have our kids in His care. He absolutely is holding our kids. And even through painful situations, He wants to get to their heart. And sometimes it's hard for kids to understand that hard things are happening to them, but it's so sweet to get them to understand that even through that painful thing, even through this thing that's hard to talk about, God is wanting to get to their heart, and it's all about just voicing that to Him and getting them 
to voice it on their own is such a huge thing. That's such a great question. I think it can pertain to other relationships besides just parent to child. Leading people to confess what's in their heart is monumental and life-changing and freeing. I know it has been for me in my own life, just understanding the power in confession. As my friend Rebecca Lyons reminds me often, confession is both confession of our sin, and it's also confessing with our mouths what's true of God and what's true of us because of who God is. So that's huge to come right behind that fragile confession of the heavy load that they're carrying and celebrate together what is true of God and now what's true of us as His beloved. Elizabeth, you asked a very important question. You said, curious on your heart for raising your son in this time in our history. I have two young boys, and I'm starting to grasp the ever-growing attack on young boys and men. What are you most convicted to instill and foster in your son's heart? Gosh, such a great question, and I feel like you could probably do an entire podcast on this subject for sure. This is actually pretty heavy on my heart right now in particular, and this might be a strange thing to say, but it's because of how many beautiful, wonderful, and eligible single women friends that I have right now who truly desire to be married and are looking around now asking themselves, where are all the eligible single men who love the Lord and want the same thing? I do feel like it's all connected somehow, and it makes me realize that it all starts when our boys are just really little and how we're raising them. It has to be connected. This question flows very well out of what I was just talking about, confession and shame and getting into the habit of giving God your heart and living with the light flipped on in your heart. If I could only pray one prayer, if I could only like have one prayer that I prayed over my kids every day. If I had to choose one, it would be that they would love God with all of their heart, like a love that just they can't escape from, a love that compels them to want to please God with a life that's pure before Him. I believe that if that happens in our kids' lives, so much will fall into place on its own because of what flows from that kind of a heart. So that's number one on my list of what I want to pray for Noah and what we want to instill in him, a love for God and a trust in him and a faith that doesn't waver in the times that we're living in. One huge parenting myth, I think, is that if you're a Christian and you do all the right things and you raise them the right way, then they will turn out awesome and they'll do all the right things. There is truth, obviously, to the Word of God when it says if you train up a child in the way they should go, they won't part from it. There is absolute truth in that. Some of that is that they also will learn from mistakes. They'll learn from choices, and it's really important to help them through that. I've had to realize, even though it pains my heart, that my kids are their own person and that they're each going to have their own journey with God, and I can't protect them from everything forever. At some point, I have to begin to release them to make those decisions that ultimately they will learn from. As I've shared before, the concept of keeping the light on in your heart is so huge and that we've instilled in Noah from the very beginning, also helping him crush any shame that he's carrying and helping him differentiate between what's shame and what is conviction of sin or what's a natural consequence of sin even. Sometimes we have to deal with the consequences of our actions and we learn from them 
and we let them produce character in us, and we let it change us forever, hopefully. That's the point. Shame needs to be broken off, though, because shame can lead to sort of a spiraling. I've seen it happen in my own kids, and you've got to kind of break through that. As parents, it's a huge part of our role to set truth before our kids and to help diffuse the lies that they're listening to and the things that our kids don't actually have to be living with that we find that they kind of just get in this little hidey hole of them living with these lies that they don't have to be living with. With boys, this starts way younger than you think it needs to, even at the age of eight or nine years old. And without going into specifics, Nathan started talking to Noah at the age of nine about the dangers of the internet because of something that Noah actually saw. This led to Nathan having to talk with Noah about sex a lot sooner than we imagined. But what we realized is that in this day and age, we were actually right on time. It's just earlier now because of what is coming against our kids. So starting early on with being upfront about God's design for sex is huge and diffusing any shame that they already have developed unknowingly is so huge. You don't have to lay it all out there for them at the age of nine. Every kid is different. You can kind of work on it in layers. You can kind of give some initial facts that somehow seem to ease the curiosity a bit and it helps them start to have a framework really early on for the family, which is so important. And when Nathan had the conversation with Noah at nine, one of the things he said was, I'm basically going to start a lifelong conversation with you about this. This is not this like sit down and have the birds and the bees talk with a pat on the back and a good luck with that. It's I'm going to actually walk with you in this. I'm going to let you in on one of the best things that God ever thought up. And I want you to know that I'm your man in this thing. I'm your guy who you can come to. You can tell me anything. And Nathan is stuck with that, even when it feels awkward sometimes. Once he's just broken through that initial conversation, though, it becomes a language that they've been able to share through the years. I don't know everything they talk about still to this day, and I don't really need to, but I know it's both spiritual and practical, like literally how to divert your eyes from something, how to get up and go do something else if temptation arises. Also, just diffusing shame around sexual curiosity in general is so monumental for men and women, and it starts when we're just kids. We are actually sexual beings, and God made us that way, and sex was made to be beautiful and a healthy part of our lives. And another huge thing is just getting real with ourselves as parents and people about the danger of pornography. It's a must. And I will say it's not just for our boys, but for our girls too. It's upon us. It's everywhere. Start way sooner than you think you need to with boys. And if your son doesn't have a father in the picture, find a youth group with small groups. Encourage him to have friendships where your son can talk about it with his friends. But we've got to be honest with ourselves about the dangers of how Satan distorts this beautiful and wonderful gift. Pornography skews the gift. Pornography skews our reality. It's also known to weaken the desire in a man to actually want to be with a woman. It's an insatiable desire that needs more and more to feed it, but it always leaves the person empty, which can lead to depression and even suicide. It's one of the prime examples of John 10.10 that Satan has come to steal, kill, 
and destroy. But Jesus said he came that we would have life and have it to the fullest. So with little boys, it's so important to show them what is right about them. What is worth waiting for? What is amazing about how they were created? What is great about sex and marriage? And what is amazing about the life that Jesus does offer us, whether we are single or married? Life full and free and having a free heart is better than anything that this world could offer us. More on practical things, the more that you just stay ahead of it and the longer you can hold off, honestly, on giving them devices like an iPhone or a pad, the better. We just didn't realize when the iPhone came out what was coming. We thought it would just be this fun way for Noah to text his friends and even text us when we're on the road. But back then, we didn't know that thousands of apps were coming and that it would be this kind of all-consuming temptation for kids We do have perimeters in our house. Our kids don't have a Safari on their iPhones. They leave their phones charging downstairs at night. They don't have them in their rooms. But now that Noah is 17 and a half, it's not about withholding technology from him anymore. It's actually challenging him with the fact that it is available to him. This is where that prayer comes in really strong, that he'd love God with all of his heart and that he'd move from, I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't do that, But he'd move to, I want to live from this place of, God, I love you and I want to please you today. That's our hope for our son. Our hope that is that he sees something about marriage around our home that's appealing to him, that he sees something in me as a wife to his dad that would make him want the same thing someday. My prayer is that we've raised him to understand the difference between what the world offers and what God offers, and that loving a woman through thick and thin and getting married and having a family is a very noble calling. There's a lot more on that subject, I'm sure, but these are just some of the things that we're still praying and clinging to God through for our son. I hope that helps. Natalie, you said, this is the last question, what process or routine do you use to help you prepare spiritually, mentally, and physically for leading worship? I've learned through the years that there's a quiet confidence that seems to come when I have spent time with the Lord before I lead worship. It's just like when you study for a test and you just have this knowing confidence that you're going to do just fine. It's the same with leading worship. When I've prepared and when I've just been with God, I feel confidence of who He is and who I am. It's that bullseye put into practice. I try to remember that I'm a host of sorts. I remember the first time we had one of Nathan's clients stay at our home in Franklin, Tennessee, probably about 15 years ago. It was our friend, Tim Hughes. He's the guy who actually always say this. He wrote, Here I Am to Worship. You probably know that song. But he was coming in from the UK for a long stay to work on his album with Nathan. And I just remember I wanted so much for our home to be a comfortable place for him. He was traveling this long distance. And we worked on the guest room. We wanted to make everything comfortable. I tried to think through everything he would need. An alarm clock, an iron, a cup of tea, of course, breakfast, warm blankets, you name it. I thought through it. I guess I just wanted him to feel so comfortable and at home. And leading worship is kind of the same to me. It's welcoming others into your own familiar. You're familiar with the Father, This hopefully quickens people into the presence of the Father because hopefully they're not having to trip through me being awkward or me not being prepared, not knowing the song, not having been with the person I'm hoping to lead them to. 
I think I've shared this little illustration before, but when our kids were little, we started this thing just kind of spontaneously. I hugged Nathan one day in the kitchen and little Noah saw us hugging and he came running and he wrapped his arms around our legs. And there we were in this little family embrace. And when Ellie was born, we didn't have to tell her about it. She just did it. When we'd hug, here'd come Noah and then here would come Ellie. And then along came Annie Rose. And again, it didn't need to be spoken. The family hug just happened. But now that we're, you know, Ellie's 15, Noah's 17, they kind of just look over at us and smile. But Annie Rose is still very much in on the family hug. And now we have like George and Brave and the dogs, they come over and have her as well. But a long time ago, during one of those family embraces, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, this is like leading worship, isn't it? So as I get near the Father, hopefully when I'm leading, others can't help but want to get near Him too. And soon we're all embracing Him together like we were made to. Another huge preparation is releasing the people that I'm getting ready to lead to God. This goes with what I was kind of saying earlier about leading with humility. It's really easy as a leader to get caught up in trying to gauge how you're doing by how the crowd is like responding or reacting. But I've learned that this is both exhausting and actually pretty misleading because there's actually no way to fully know what the Spirit of God is really doing in the room. Yes, I should have a read on what He is saying to me in the moment of how I should lead, but I need to release them to Him. Part of humble leading is how I said before, is reminding yourself that He's the one who's brought the people there. He's the one working in their lives. He knows their stories. He's going to go with them as they leave. So as a leader, it's so important to say with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Spirit of God, come and have your way and do what only you can do. I also do try to warm up my voice about 25 minutes before leading. I usually drink some tea. And as I'm physically preparing myself, sometimes I'll just kind of go out and try to get a glimpse of someone in the audience, maybe a few people, and just get their faces in my mind, and I'll start praying for them. I'll pray that faith will rise up in their hearts, that God will meet them right where they are, and that they will have a life-changing encounter with Him and worship. And by doing this, it helps me take the focus off of me and on to what God wants to do in the room with His people. I think that's an important aspect of leading in any capacity or just living in any capacity to keep giving Jesus our heart in such a way that we stay healed up so that our focus can actually turn outward. Again, my friend Rebecca Lyons shares a lot that when she broke free, she began to see others for the first time in a new way. When your heart stays healed and God's keeping you stay in a capacity of being able to receive others and to pray for them and really just to believe the Father's heart for them on their behalf. It's so important to be able to do that. Do we need rest at times from receiving others all the time? Yes. But overall, it's to rest and receive so that we can again emerge and offer the hope that He's given us and the life that He's given us. I know that the next few days for me are going to be about resting and receiving from the Lord all over again so that I can emerge fresh in the new year to welcome others again. I pray that for all of you, that your Christmas would be filled with time to rest and receive, even if it's under the covers in your bed, which I'm praying for a few of those moments myself. It's much needed. I feel spilled completely out at this moment in the very best way, but I'm longing for restoration, to rest and receive, all for the purpose 
of emerging again as a person of rest who can receive those around me and help lead them over again to the river of grace. Proverbs 11.25 says, The one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. Those who help others are helped. Or some translations say, The one who waters will himself be watered. I'm praying that over you and myself this Christmas. Jesus is the hope of the world. But in other words, Jesus in us is the hope of the world since we represent Him. We represent Him, as I've said before. And as you've poured out, as you've watered, and as you've blessed, maybe even in unseen ways, in uninstagrammable moments that are still huge in God's eyes, may you find yourself watered and poured into and blessed and refreshed in such a way that you can emerge in 2018 already resolved that you are steadily still His beloved. I can't thank all of you enough for what you've meant to me this year as I've gotten to speak with some of you even and hug your necks. The encouragement you've given as you've blessed me both in person and online is more than you can imagine. Thank you so much. I pray that you and yours Have a glorious Christmas. I wait with sweet anticipation of the coming year and the stirrings that are yet to come for all of us. And I look forward to sharing them, whatever they are, with you. I'll talk to you soon.